Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. Good evening. G'day. My name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing Predictably Irrational by Dan O'Reilly. Uh, mate, Dan the Man. This is a sick book. Uh, pounded through it pretty quick, uh, but there's a whole lot of stuff in here. It's a bit of a stuff from like Thinking Fast and Slow, maybe a bit of stuff from Influence, mm. a few things like that, a few of our cognitive biases. Basically saying that we're all... We do things that are irrational, um, but in predictable ways, I guess, in that we all do weird shit, but we all do the same weird shit consistently. Mm. So he's a behavioral economist, I think, at Duke University. That sounds right. Sounds about right. So, we'll, yeah. We'll run with that. So, I essentially, think- as you said, man, it's it's how we pretty much stuff ourselves up by being irrational. And then I guess he also mentioned some things you can do about it as well to get over your own irrationality. Yeah, nice. And by way of, in the introduction, he talks about how he sort of came across this field of study and that he was in Israel and I don't, he didn't really explain how, but he got blown up by some bomb magnesium flare thing and had like burns to 70% of his body. And he was in some serious pain for a long time, like in a hospital for years. And every day he had to get bandaged, he had to get like D, um, stuff put on him, bandages off, bandages put back on. Basically he said that the nurses, uh, did a quick rip, like the, ripped the bandaid off, did it real quick, uh, and it was painful, really super painful. And he found that actually, if you did it really slow, it would be less overall pain. But the thing was, none of the nurses wanted to do that because they were causing pain for a longer period of time. And so he realized that it was irrational. They'd rather cause more pain, but they didn't have to sort of be there pulling stuff off their skin for a long period of time. Yeah. So yeah, that's a yeah perfect example of I guess the nurse where their goal is to probably prevent Dan's pain, but just because they're irrational, they're doing quite the opposite with their jobs. So yeah. if they had read this book, they might not have. Uh, yeah, might not and have basically, isn't saying that it's like they're not like purposely causing more pain. It just seems to them like the better option. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of where he got intrigued by all this stuff, and we'll go through a whole bunch of other ways in which we're irrational. Yeah, phenomenal. So the book starts off with chapter one: the truth about relativity. So this is why everything is relative, even when it shouldn't be. And basically he says that everything we look at, we're not judging as an absolute. We're judging it all as relative to something else. Mm. So we're always comparing things. We're not just judging them as they are. We're always comparing them to something else. So he starts this example off with, a, uh, ex- a, I guess, a, an experiment where he's got three options. So the first option uh, for people to choose what would be the most desirable and option one was the Economist subscription online for $59. Yep. Yeah, so basically you could su- subscribe online for $59. You could subscribe in print for $125. Or you could subscribe in print and online also for $125. Yeah. And then naturally what a lot of people do is just like 10 toward option three because it just looks like they're getting the, the web subscription for free. But what Dan was thinking, fuck... Uh, you know, did they put in option two just so you could go to option three? Because <laughs> basically, no one's going to get option two where it's just the print because it's the same cost as getting both. But basically, he was saying that we can't judge things that we can't compare. So we can't sort of compare our online subscription for $59 with the print subscription for 125 because they're both completely different things. But when we compare that we can get both for the same price, it becomes easy to compare them both. Mm. And relatively, it sounds like the best option. Yeah. So, yeah, you choose the uh, option three, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's also used a lot in sales. So when there's three prices, they use the middle one 
uh, which is chosen the most. So, you know, they also have this one which uh, is the extremely high price, which people aren't yeah. going to go for, but you might be able to use that as a decoy. But, uh, yeah, and then people tend to go to the middle one. Yeah, exactly. And uh, no one wants to be a cheapo um, and pick the bottom one, and no one wants to go with the most expensive one. So, yeah. Mate, it also works for picking up as well. <laughs> and, mate, so he said that we like to be able to compare things. So a weird thing that he said that if you compare A and B, so there's two attributes. A is good at attribute one, but not so good at, att- at attribute two, and B is good at attribute two, but not so good at attribute one. We can't really compare the two uh, objectively, uh, it, it's a tough decision. It, it makes us think too much. We have to work too hard. But he says if you put like uh, something that's good at attribute one and something that's like not good, so he calls it A and A negative. Then you compare those two, and you're going to pick A and ignore B essentially. Yeah, that's what it makes sense. So he's saying that if there's two things uh, that are completely different, A and B, it's tough to compare them. But if you put A B and A negative, you're going to pick A because it seems like the relatively better option because you've seen a dud version of A. 100%. And yeah, there's nothing to compare with B. So this is, what you can take a guess from that is (laughs) if you go to a bar, if you're single and you're hoping to attract someone, you're better off bringing someone with similar characteristics as you but less attractive. Yeah. So it's like that A and A. So bring the the less good version of you. Yeah. It's basically if you're like, if you're a tall, skinny guy and there's a short, muscular guy, you want to bring another tall, skinny guy who's not quite as good as you. <laughs> Basically, that's the that's the plan. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, another one, just quickly. So, top executives. So, in 1976, the average CEO was paid 36 times. Mm-hmm. It crept up to 131 times by 1993. So, in, what, yeah, by the average worker. Sorry, yeah. by the average salary. So, what they thought was at this stage, you know, this is getting out of hand. Yeah, we need to disclose what every CEO is getting paid. And rather than everyone, every CEO being paid less, what happened was the CEO's salary is actually skyrocketed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before they just, they were comparing to the average worker, but now when they could compare to each other and they thought, oh, the CEO of this company is getting this much, so I need to get more than him. Yeah. So it's all relative. <laughs> so they got, ended up getting paid 369 times the average worker. Which is so massive. Th- yeah. So there's this dude, H.L. Mencken, who says that man's satisfa- satisfaction with salary depends on whether he makes more than his wife, sister's husband. This is a comparison that is salient and readily available. Yeah, basically because that's the person who's, I guess, most similar to you, but you can see straight away what they're on or you'll hear about it all the time. Mm. Uh, Mate, the next one was the fallacy of supply and demand. And he talks about here anchoring uh, and these anchors that we have that we're, again, comparing everything to these anchors. Uh, And sometimes they're not even, that doesn't even make sense. So he talks a lot about arbitrary coherence. So basically, though, people were given a random number, and that impacted how they then judged everything else. Essentially, yeah. So this happens a lot in economics. So everyone just thinks, or I guess traditional economists think, it's just purely, I guess, supply and demand that affects the price of a certain thing. But this idea of arbitrary coherence suggests that the initial price also has a huge thing to play because it has. Once we have this price at the start mm. established in our minds, then that's what is anchored there pretty much forever. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's like say if uh, at the moment, like say if petrol at the moment is like a dollar thirty per liter, but we used to think, oh, petrol used to be a dollar per liter. It's so expensive now. Mm-hmm. But then, so that's our anchor that we're comparing everything to that one dollar per liter back in the day. Yep, and we do that because it's easier to make decisions in the future based on our mm. initial decision. It takes less cognitive load, I guess. Yeah, and this is one of the things Starbucks did when they first started out 
as a cafe. They try to make everything so different to the ordinary cafe that they can establish a new anchor. So yeah. they didn't go against competing against all these other cafes with all the same kind of stuff. They went completely new and then charged their new prices as well accordingly. Yeah, exactly. Because if you think, oh, I can get a coffee down the road for 3 bucks, or I can get it at Starbucks for 10 uh, it's just ridiculous comparing those two. So they've gone completely out of the ordinary and made a whole new category that you can't compare it with the regular old cafe. Yeah, 100%. So he says there's some lessons from these experiments. Like, were our original decisions wise and smart in the first place, like to be where we are today, or were they partially random first imprints that have run wild? Yeah, well, because they could be anything. And he talks about here how they got people to estimate like the price of some random stuff, like the price for a keyboard, the price for a bottle of wine, the price for a book uh, and all these things. And they had people that uh, they told them to think about their last two digits of say their credit card number. So they looked at the last two digits and the people who had like a digit, like a one five or a one six or something compared to someone who had the last two digits of an eight one or eight nine one or something really high. The people who had the low numbers guessed that the uh, things would cost less and the people with the high numbers estimated a higher cost. Mm. And so, because it's so random, but we just like had this random number in our mind that we were thinking about and because we were thinking about a high number, we assumed things would cost more. Yeah. So, it's just like random stuff that we just get... Super yeah. <laughs> irrational. Super irrational, yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, he says... Uh, an example is closing it up, I guess. So, traditionally, if the price of milk goes up by 50%, these new prices will definitely affect consumption due to our anchor of what we think uh, milk should be. Yeah. But he's saying if we had amnesia and we totally forgot the initial prices and then the price of milk went up, yeah. then there'll be no no change on demand just because our anchor's not there and we, we don't have this idea of what milk should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's bizarre, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, chapter three was a cost of zero. And the, the lure of free and how something that's free is super attractive. We get like swept up in this craze of free stuff. Yeah. So zero is not a price, it turns out, but it's an emotional hot button mm. and a source of irrational excitement. You do get a bit excited, I think, when you... Oh, definitely. Yeah. And basically, so he was... One of the things they did was like... Uh, they had two different types of chocolates. They had lint chocolate and they had Hershey's chocolate. And the lint they were selling for uh, whatever it was, 25 cents... And they were selling Hershey's for five cents. Mm. Uh, and so they worked out how many they sold. And, you know, it was about the same. But when they dropped them both by five cents, so Lint became 20 cents, Hershey's became free. Even though the rel- Lint still cost 20 cents more than the Hershey's, uh, everyone went the free, essentially. Yep. And yep. Then just because it was free, everyone just went wild, even though it's the Lint was better. It was still 20 cents more, um, but it was just so different. Yeah, so he says most transactions have an upside and downside, but when mm. something is free, like you were just saying, then we forget the downside of, of everything and we just only see the upside. Yeah, that's spot on. So humans are intrinsically afraid of loss and the allure of free is, is tied to this fear of, of loss so that you know once that downside's removed, we, we all this fear of, of, yeah. of loss is removed as well. Because basically we, we can't, you know, we, we might make the wrong decision, but if it's free, it doesn't matter if we've made the wrong decision then. So there's essentially no loss there. Yeah. So we might get fucking screwed sometimes. So say, yeah. <laughs> you know, we might choose a mortgage with no closing costs, but at the same time has interest rates and fees that are off the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks in here about, uh, I think it was Woody Allen quote uh, saying that, you know, 
the mo- oh, actually this just comes later. I'll say that one for later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's ridiculous how that something if it becomes free just attracts our attention so much. Yeah. Yeah. The next part of the book was chapter four: the costs of social norms. And I thought it was really cool, man. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, how there's essentially there's social norms and there's market norms. So the market norms is when you exchange money for products and services. And the social norms is where you're doing it just because it's the right thing to do. It's like what you should be doing or what people think you should be doing or, yeah, yeah just in a social society. So he kicks off the chapter with a social norm example. So say if you're at your mother-in-law's for dinner and you had an incredible meal, you know, she made a signature dish with all her love in the world in it. And then at the end, you pull out your wallet and ask your mother-in-law, you know, how much do I owe you for this <laughs> yeah. experience? Yeah. So that's an example where you're trying to mix a, this person is trying to mix a market norm yeah. and a social norm. So they're two completely different things. Yeah. It might have cost, you know, it might have cost 200 bucks to buy food and cook the food and the time to make it. Um, but because it's a social norm of somebody cooking for someone else, you invite them into your home, yeah. uh, then you're not expecting to be paid for that. Now, the other one is like with, uh, with sex as well, which is where I was going just before <laughs> in that like... Uh, you know, if someone, if a man wants to, you know, have some sex with a woman uh, and he takes her out for dinner and buys, goes to a movie and stuff, so it might cost, you know, a hundred bucks for dinner and a movie. Uh, the sex is the, the social norm, yeah. but you wouldn't say, oh, I've spent a hundred bucks on you tonight, so you owe me. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me some. So that's right. So social norms, you know, instant paybacks not required. And yeah, and yeah you can never mix them up because... He says, yeah, some say, once you mix them up, then it's, yeah. it's really hard to go back. Essentially, there's things that you do as a, as a social norm that you always do, whether it's um, you know, having people around for dinner. Uh, as soon as like, there's money introduced into it, it's almost impossible to go back to doing it for free. Mm, that's right. So he uses this in the context of business also. And he talks about a study where he tried to get people to draw these circles on mm. a piece of paper or something along those lines. So... At the start, in the first study, there was three different scenarios. So the first one was there was a $5 reward for the, the person in, yep. and this person drew 159 circles. Mm-hmm. The second was a $0.50 cent reward, and they only drew 101 circles. Yep. But then the th- so obviously, the $5 people drew a lot more than the $0.50 cent people. Yeah. But then the third one, with a condition with no money, where it was just a social request as a favor, yep. they drew 168 circles. Yeah. So they drew more than the people who were getting paid to do it because they were doing it as a favor, as a social norm instead of a market norm. Mm. And in the next example, they did the same but with gifts. So they did a, they gave the person a $5 gift yep. and they drew 162 circles. Yep. The second one, they gave a 50 cent gift, 169 circles. And then the social, again, was 168 circles. Yeah. So essentially, it was all the same when it was just a gift. But then what they did was if they said... Instead of giving a Snickers bar, uh, if they said, here's a 50 cent Snickers bar, it reverted back to the the dollar figure from the first example. Yeah. So essentially what they study is saying social norms can at times be more effective than market norms, even mm. in the case of a business setting. And it's also like, I think with, with volunteering as well, like say social norms mean you're getting other value out of doing it. So if you go down to the soup kitchen and volunteer two hours of your time um, to you know help people and hand out food and stuff, you're going to get more value out of that than if they say, hey, why don't we pay you 20 bucks an hour to do this? Mm. And you think, no, I'm not going to do that for 20 bucks an hour, but you do it for free. Yeah. So, yeah. And what are a lot of businesses are, are doing nowadays as well where I guess they might have built some reputation on social norms, but at the moment it might turn 
the focus towards short-term profits, outsourcing, mm. cost-cutting, uh, and all these kind of things that might cut back on the, the social parts of a, of a business or the, you know, the staff Christmas party gets gets cut back and all that. But it's really uh, changing the relationship with their work to more of a market norm and, and removing that social element. So essentially, they end up working a bit you know, less harder. Yeah, and it ties in very much to Dan Pink's um, drive in that you've got the, the carrot or the stick sorts of extrinsic motivation versus the intrinsic motivation. Once you introduce these market norms and throwing uh, strict profit money stuff into it, then it completely eradicates all the, the social norms. Mate, he touches on, uh, I didn't think he'd be the type to go to Burning Man and a big Duke professor or whatever, but he was saying that's, <laughs> that's essentially it. what a Burning Man... Uh, Burning Man Festival in Nevada mm. is based on its this social norm. So there's no money in there, and and everything's just based on social uh, interactions and and yeah, and and just giving it, giving each other gifts, um, exchanging favors and stuff. Mate, chapter five, I reckon you'd love this: the influence of arousal. Yeah, it's it's real, isn't it? Gets into a lot of sex stuff. Yeah. So it's essentially once we get worked up and horny, we're essentially <laughs> a totally different person. <laughs> So you've ever been the type that are, uh, I guess, you know, a mild, friendly person, but once you get start looking at that first wet, first porn site, you, know, <laughs> you, you start more. drifting into something. <laughs> it was funny, but so one of the one of the studies I did, basically, they had people rate like uh, give themselves a score out of a hundred as to how likely they would be or how attracted they are to, to some of these things. Mm. And the first example was just like. They were just sitting in the room filling out the survey and one was like, uh, are you attracted to women's feet turn you on? Are you attracted to 12-year-old girls? Are you attracted to 60-year-old women? Uh, can you get sexual pleasure from touching an animal? Things like that. Yeah. And the answers were really low. Hmm. And then the second study they did was they got these same people to go to their room, whack their laptop open, watch some porn, have a bat. Rub them out as they're doing, and then the questions popped up, and they rated them again. And they, the answers were off the charts. Oh yeah, everyone so, was into the twelve-year-old girls and the animals. <laughs> so they couldn't. Yeah. So they, with that, they couldn't ejaculate. So he says, you yeah. know, there's this dude called you know Roy. It's a student every mother would be proud of. He's kind, intelligent, and accomplished. He plays yeah. piano. He's the captain of the volleyball team with a steady girlfriend. So on the surface, he looks like he's you know, a very friendly guy. Never do some dirty, crazy things. But as soon as you get that laptop open, yeah. <laughs> he just changed into a fucking sicko. It all changes. So essentially, in all cases, people, the people who are in this study fail to predict the influence of arousal on their sexual preferences, mm. morality, and approach to safe sex. Yeah. There was a, a lot of things that uh, completely went out the window um, in terms of safe sex, when they became aroused, essentially. Yeah, he says the re- when the reptilian brain takes over, you can really become unrecognizable to yourself mm. when you're gripped into the passion and emotions of, you know, the boundary becomes blurred of what's right and yeah. wrong. Mate, some of these ones in that, that second study you're referring to, he said, like, one of the questions was, like, would you slip a woman a drug in her drink to increase the chances of having sex with her? Pre-arousal, they were 5%. Mm. Mid-bat, they were 26%. <laughs> So that was like five times more likely. Yeah. And the same as like, would you keep trying to have sex after she says no? Yeah, some other full-on so, things yeah, like that. Yeah. Some dirty. Do you think that'll hold up in court? This <laughs> just, <laughs> I was just in the throes of uh, some serious passion. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Um, mate, after that, we'll try and whiz through a few more. We're only five out of 11 down. Mm. Um, there's some awesome stuff. Chapter six was about procrastination and self-control. 
And basically that procrastination is essentially giving up our long-term goal for instant gratification. And essentially we're, we're all victims of it. That The rational thing to do is to realize that the long-term goal we're trying to pursue is way more important, but we always give it up for short-term, whether that's health and fitness, whether rather than, you know, rather than going for a run, we just sit down and watch TV or mm. that's a one example of procrastination. And essentially the, the, the best way to get past that is to set up systems for all your, mm. all your shit. So especially the most obvious example is finances. Set up a system so all your finances are all automated so then your short-term, I guess, inclinations don't really take over. Yeah. Man, there was an interesting one here. He um, talked about students where there was three assignments I had to do over a 12-week semester. And basically, there was three different groups. One was they said, all you have to do is hand them in before the last day. So there was no deadlines. One group, they said, you can set your own deadlines. So commit to it now. And every day you're late, you get a 10% deduction. But they set their own deadlines. They could make it the last day if they wanted. Uh, and then one group, they were just given, you know, do this by week four, do this by week eight. Mm-hmm. And the ones who had no deadlines completely stuffed it, whereas the ones who had completely rigid external given them deadlines, um, nailed it. Yeah, phenomenal. Chapter seven, man, the high price of ownership. Man, he just talks about the endowment effect in that we value what we have um, because we focus on what we could lose rather than what we could gain. So basically, if we've got something, we see that as way more um, valuable than what we don't have. Yeah. So one way that's used on us is there's a 30-day money-back guarantee because the people who own the product know once we've got it and we own it, we're going to probably value it more because we have that feeling of ownership around it. Yeah, we almost never give it up, do we? Because we we wouldn't want to lose what we've got. Those free trials always sucker us in. So chapter A, the next one is keeping doors open. And I think we've used this example a few times. Tony Robbins always talks about it. Is that that story of in 210 BC where the Chinese commando Xiong Zhu uh, led troops across the Yangtze River to attack the enemy, and the, but the troops awoke in the morning to all their boats burning and their, their uh, cooking utensils all thrown away. Mm. So what that actually did is they had a tremendous focusing effect because they knew they couldn't go back. So mm. they charged ferociously forward toward the enemy and then just kicked ass. Yeah, their only option, they couldn't turn back. Their only option was to win, mm. essentially. And so basically he said here that what we like to do, we like to have all these options open. And it comes into the book, The Paradox of Choice, we keep talking about that we've always got these eyes on other things. We might keep switching around, but the best option is basically get rid of everything else, stick to one thing mm. and just, yeah. Mate, I've got an example of that on the weekend. I reckon yeah. we were, at, uh, we're all drinking at a, a friend's house, yep. having a few beers and then people had about, there's about three different options in the air about where we should go. Yeah. Then essentially the whole group got split up and yep. then just, just got to left shit. in shambles. Whereas <laughs> if, if we burn a few boats there, yeah. it might have been uh, If you had have picked one and stuck to it, it would have been good, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Chapter nine was the effect of expectations. And basically saying that if we expect something is going to be good, it's going to be good. If we expect something's going to be bad, it's probably going to be bad. Mm. And so he talks about these um, <clears throat> these beers where they dropped some vinegar into the beers and did a blind taste test. Yeah. The people who didn't know the vinegar was in it, they actually said the vinegar beer was really good. But when they told them beforehand, they said, this is normal beer, this is beer with vinegar in it, they all thought it was disgusting. Yeah. So even though... Uh, when we thought it was going to be bad because we thought vinegar and beer, that sounds awful, then it was bad. When we didn't know about it, though, we thought it was actually not too bad. Yeah. Super irrational. Super irrational. The next one, man, was chapter 10, the power of price. And similar in that the, uh, like we might think something that costs more is inherently better. Mm. And we think that price infers quality, that 
if we buy a um, a Panadol or an aspirin for five bucks, it's going to be more effective than a one dollar home brand style. Yeah, I, I thought this this one fitted a bit better into the previous chapter. Is yeah. examples in here because <laughs> he does go on a lot about placebo. Mm. How we our expectation of what this medication is going to do pretty much has the whole effect. Mm. But also on top of that is the price we pay. So if we pay more for the for the aspirin, as you yep. were saying, then then it's actually going to have a yeah be more effective. Yeah, and it's shown to work. And the same as we've talked about, like people who have knee reconstructions, um, if people actually don't have it, but they get cut open and sewn back up, and they think they had the knee reconstruction, it works just as well. Mm. Um, and the placebo comes from two reasons. One is belief, just this faith and confidence in that, like we said, we expect it to work, so it does. Um, and the other one is conditioning in that if every time we have an aspirin, a headache goes away, if we have an aspirin, then our body makes the headache go away, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So toward the end of the book, he now goes into the context of our character. Yeah. And that's essentially why we are dishonest and what we can do about it. Man, you talked about people like giving the, giving the option to cheat. So there was like, uh, they did a test uh, where they self-reported their answers and how many they got right. And, and like some different examples where like the answers were already filled out. Basically said that everyone given the option to cheat will cheat, but only a little bit. And only like, even if we aren't risking going to get caught, like, so there was somewhere you like got to throw away your paper and just told them what you got. We still cheated the same amount, only a little bit. We didn't cheat more, even though we didn't think we were going to get caught. Yeah. He says this because there's two types of dishonesty, he says. So, the, the part where we kind of just let it slip, mm. as you were saying. So, an exa- another example that might be, say, where he says the cost of all robberies in the USA is $525 million. Because mm-hmm. that's clear cut. Everyone knows that's theft and that's wrong. Yeah. But actually, the cost of theft and fraud in the workplace is uh-huh. around $600 billion. <laughs> Yeah. So, That's like if you take a couple of pens home yeah. <laughs> from the stationary cupboard. Another one, probably property lot. So if you're insurance companies, you're going to claim, you know, not the 15-inch TV, you're going yeah. to claim the 22-inch TV <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. and all that. Whereas it's essentially still theft. Yeah. And and he says if it's linked to cash in any way, we won't do it. Yes. But if it's one step away from a cash, as yeah. in the case of claiming on insurance or something like that, we're more than happy to lie and cheat and steal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We wouldn't take a hundred bucks out of someone's wallet, but we take happily take a hundred bucks worth of stationery out of the closet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that was sort of. Oh, the last one was just he talked about our need for un- uniqueness uh, in ordering, and that if there was, say, there was three specials and you got three people at the table, um, pretty much a person who goes first, and other people are going to get something different because they want to be special, they want to be different, even though maybe you really wanted what the first guy had, but you don't want to be seen as copying the first dude. Yeah. Mate, really good book. I reckon phenomenal book. Um, yeah, really good. There are definitely some takeaways because once you understand your own irrationality, then he, he says you can design your own environment, I guess, mm. to help you make better choices or just understanding it and being more yeah. conscious of it. You're just going to make better choices. Yeah, just all these things that we, you'd never think about, like getting tricked by free things, getting tricked by comparing, you know, always picking the middle option, whereas maybe the top one was a... No one's going to pick it. They just put it in there so you pick the middle one. Yeah, or understanding, I guess, social norms. So yeah. in the past where I'd always go to a party and you might give him, you know, 50, 100 bucks cash, yeah. you're 100 times better buying a social yeah. gift, buying him an actual gift, gift rather yeah. than give the cash because you shouldn't be mixing the market norms with, with yeah. the relationships, it turns yeah. out. Yeah, no, very true. Phenomenal book. Dan Ariely, what a ledge. 
Um, we, should, we might go to the ballet with him. We might. I don't know. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll talk to him. We've invited him to the ballet. <laughs> but he hasn't replied he hasn't since then. <laughs> so hopefully we talk to him. So if we haven't talked to him, it's because Adam Ashton invited him to the ballet. Mate, <laughs> high risk, high reward, I reckon. Ballet with Dan. <laughs> have a glass of red. Let's have an irrational song. Yeah, it's what you gonna do when you're predictably irrational, baby? Daniel Ariely. What is the truth? What is the truth? What is the truth about general relativity? General relativity, we compare everything, everything to everyone else. Every now, chapter two was fallacy of supply and demand, boy. Anchor, anchor. Everything's an anchor when everything's an anchor, then everything's an anchor. Now the cost, the cost, the cost is zero cost. It certainly is, and zero is the cost. Most expensive sex is free sex. Pay for sex, it's much easier sex. What about if you go to your mother in laws well to pay her $50 for that roast chicken on a Sunday night? Make it $60, maybe that will be better. Now the influence of arousal, there's a chick with titties, I'm stiff. Go and have a wank and then you're gonna do some fucked up shit. You're gonna like animals, you're gonna like the 12 year old girls and then you might choke somebody. What if I owned it? What if I owned it? What if I own that piece of land? Get in doubt. You don't want to lose that. Just, 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 just gain. Don't, don't lose. Just gain. Yeah, keep the doors open or your ships will burn. Cause the Chinese captain's gonna kill your man. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. Every are irrational. We're not very rational. Predictably irrational, my daddy. I really. They're not irrational.